AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 high quality ingredients. And what that means is each morning when I wake up, before I do anything else, I drink AG1 to set me up for the day. It keeps me clear headed, full of energy and focused on whatever I need to do, like writing the fighting cock, for example. One scoop once a day before breakfast and that's it. I've actually found that I've not been needing coffee in the morning to get me started. I've still been drinking coffee because I love coffee, but it's not because it's like a necessity to do so. AG1 is made out of the highest quality ingredients subject to the strictest manufacturing standards. AG1 is NSF certified for sport and this process involves exhaustive testing and verification that every serving of AG1 is exactly what you see on the label. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs for your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash the fighting cock. That's drinkag1.com forward slash the fighting cock to get started. And to help the podcast. Thank you very much. Have a great day and enjoy the show. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, GEICO can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners' or renters' coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the fight in. Hello boys and girls and welcome to the first in what will hopefully be a series of extra fighting cock podcasts called The Extra Inch, <laughs> a name which uh, Flav will be immensely proud of having come up with it last night. Um, I'm Wendy, you may have realised that. 
And I'm here because I love my tactics and analytical side of football. And we thought that it would be quite useful. um, And that there was an interest from Spurs fans in the more tactical side of football. Um, You might change your mind on that (laughs) come the end of this podcast, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, Of course, every host needs a sidekick. Flav's got Flavonius. Flavonius. I've got Bardi and our joint name will be Windy. So it works perfectly <laughs> in my opinion. I'm only here because I'm backing you to um, to make me the real money and get me the, get me the women as well. Is that That's what it is? I mean, I wouldn't bank on me getting you women, <laughs> judging by my track record. I'm, um, I'm just letting you think that you're leading. You're like the horse, I'm the jockey. I'm riding you. <laughs> I'm riding you towards the money. This has gone very fighting cock already. But Sorry. Whatever. <laughs> uh, we talk about wanking now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've done it. <laughs> and that voice you heard there, the nice, deep, fruity voice, unlike Bardi and my uh, squeaky uh, voice, is, is Nathan, um, better known possibly as TT Tactics on Twitter, Talking Tottenham Tactics. I kind of wanted you co- to call you 3T at, at one point, but then I realised that was that terrible pop band that Michael it's Jackson's easy. nephews formed oh, in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll just <laughs> stick to TTT. Nathan, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, good. Good to have you with us. Nathan's been making videos and writing blogs about tactics and Spurs very well. And we've approached him recently to do some bits for our website, which have come out really well. Um, But we'll talk about Nathan's work in a bit. I mean, to kick us off, we're probably going to go back to the start of Pochettino's reign at Tottenham um, and try and talk about what our expectations were of Pochettino before he arrived. Um, Going from his early days as a coach to his setup at Southampton, I mean, w- none of us are um, football experts, shall we say, but we've all got <laughs> opinions on football. I don't want this to come across as us sort of trying to, <laughs> I don't know, Lecture. present ourselves as yeah. the, the, the kind of the final say on all things football and tactics. But we've all, we're all interested in this stuff and we've all got opinions on it. So hopefully it'll come across that way. Um, so going back to, to kind of your expectations of Poch before he arrived, Bardi, what did you... What did you know about him and what were you what did you expect from him when he first joined us? I was like most most people in this country that I wasn't too sure about him. I've never been a big follower of La Liga, but he came with a decent reputation. He'd managed to do some good things at Espanyol. He'd managed to um, get the better of Guardiola while he was there. And um, what he'd done at Southampton, he was, it was, you know, it was amazing. Under Adkins, they were on their way down. He sorted them out. He strengthened them. He blood, he bled through some, blood, blooded through some English players. And um, you got to remember with the state we were in when he arrived, we wanted someone with a purpose, someone with a plan, because we'd had the dark days of AVB towards the end of it, and we'd we'd had to put up with Sherwood playing Chadley as a holding <laughs> midfielder. So um, anyone that had a plan, had a system, and an ethos was for me that was that was amazing. Nathan, yeah, I was pretty keen on Pochino uh, early on. I was hoping that we would be uh, looking at him when we first sacked AVB. Um, yeah, Southampton playing some um, beautiful football despite being uh, financially one of the weaker teams in the league, um, attacking, high-pressing. They were wearing out a lot and getting tired towards the end of games, but I thought, you know, exciting young manager. So, And at the time, I think we were we were basically playing 4-2-3-1 before he arrived, so it seemed like the transition from one formation to another would be fairly seamless. It was just the kind of the nature of the um, the formation that was that was... That was different in a way, and it was the um, it wasn't just the the nature of the formation. It was it was it was the same thing, but the players changed their attitude, the way they moved, completely altered. 
we'd gone from being quite a big team of players like Capu, Paulinho, who were quite you know big, solid, robust players, to all of a sudden we had a midfield duo of Bentaleb and Mason, mm. who were nippy, nimble, and able to get around the pitch, which kind of like summed up the the, the principles of how Pochettino wanted to play. And when he was at Southampton, he had this reputation for bringing through youth players, which I think to some degree was slightly overblown given that some of the youth players were already in the team. Uh, but it's definitely a thing with Pochettino that he likes young, hungry players that he yeah. can mould to, to fit his style. And I think that's something that Levy would have been attracted by, particularly because at that time we had a lot of players bubbling under the surface who were ready to break through. Well, there's, um, we, we always talk about the parallels between um, Pochettino and Bielsa. But Bielsa, before he, his first stint at Newell's, he spent a lot of the time working with young kids and he would just travel around Argentina making notes, seeing how people played. And then at Newell's, he worked with the youth team, trained them, and when eventually he was moved to a senior role, his training methods were like completely bought into by the young players and the young players almost set the tone for the older players to follow on with what, what he was doing. So Newell's, you mentioned, are... Obviously, an Argentinian football club called Newell's Old Boys, yeah. who Bielsa managed. That was his first job in in um, football management. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I believe, was that Pochettino's first professional football club as well? Yeah, he uh, uh, Bielsa came and discovered Pochettino, uh, drove around his house in the middle of the night and got him out of bed and said, <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's a big lad, he's got good legs, he'll do, he'll be one of my boys. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the rest of his history. I've never noticed his legs, actually. It's no. not something that stood out to me before. But... It's a bit horsey, isn't it? Yeah. He's got <laughs> solid legs. Check his teeth. But in yeah. Milan, they, uh, AC Milan, apparently, the, ru- the ru- rumour is that um, the medical staff will check a new player or new signing's teeth to see, and that <laughs> relates to how healthy they are, and um, you kind of base their fitness regime on, on their teeth. That's that's bizarrely interesting. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not surprised that you've got these niche nuggets on <laughs> on Milan, to be honest. But that's actually an interesting one. I like yeah. it. So, Pochettino is seen as a disciple of Bielsa because of the yeah. style of play. Um, Bielsa was famed for playing this three-three-one-three formation, which most people will recognise from. Um, when he was managing Chile at the World Cup, or Chile, I never know how to pronounce it, Chile or Chile. Um, but that was that kind of seen as an outlandish formation at the World Cup in 2008? 2010. 2010, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and three at the back at that point was quite rare across most footballing nations. Um, the, the thing about Bielsa's formation, or, I mean, he was fairly rigid. He was He was fairly rigid, but he was also... He did adapt to a back four at times. Um, the, the most striking thing for me was the fact that he had a front, a front three with one behind. The front three was very definitive. There was two wide players who stuck very wide and a striker with a number 10 behind behind the um, central striker. And it, it, it struck me the other day as interesting that Bielsa was famed for this 3-3-1-3 three, 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 and Pochettino's most recently changed to a back three for the first time in his in his Spurs career, um, do, I mean, the fact that he was so willing to change and so confident in his players to be able to pull that off, do you think that maybe harks back to what what he's seen under Bielsa and the way he's perhaps trained under Bielsa? So uh, we've only really uh, played a recognised back three on a couple of occasions, but I think most of last season when we were on paper as playing a four two three one, we were actually playing a very uh, Bielsa esque. 
uh, shape with Dyer dropping in and the fullbacks pushing up and Eriksen being deeper than the wingers. So we actually play a, a very uh, Bielsa-esque shape a lot of the time, a lot of last season, three at the back. So although you might say, oh, that was surprising, we played a three against Arsenal, we sort of always do <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on the stages of the play, basically, doesn't it? I mean, certainly we've got players capable of playing in midfield or at the back. We've got so many defenders who are comfortable in possession, but we've also got Dyer, who's become a midfielder, but is equally adept at, at playing at centre-back. Um, OK, maybe equally adept is, is pushing it slightly, but he's, he, he's looked comfortable there on occasion. He's had a good game against, there, against West Ham there. And mm. um, Wanyama has also played at centre-back in his career and apparently is is very happy to play there, although we've not seen him there yet for Spurs. So it's, it is interesting, the, the kind of willingness to shift between a back three and four. Well, the, one of the fundamentals of Bielsa was moving um, defensive midfielders into centre-back roles. He did it with um, Medel. He did it with um, Javi Martinez at um, Atletico Madrid. And um, you could see Poch maybe doing it with Dyer. Personally, I like the three at the back. I've been talking about Spurs playing three at the back for a while now. I think we've got the players to do it. I think the Arsenal game showed that we have the back five capable of doing it. Um, we just need a little bit of tinkering in our midfield. We need to get that midfield right. We need someone who can control the ball better, control the tempo of the game, because we've got the runners there. We've got, we got players like um, Dembele and Ali who can get box to box. And um, you saw Juve probably the best example of it. Three ball-playing defenders and then a midfield that is one who's capable on the ball and two others who can get about the pitch, someone like Pogba, Marquiso, that kind of style. And I think the future for Spurs could be a back three. I think Chelsea are also a really good example at the moment, especially with Azpilicueta playing on the right side of the back three because he's a genuinely talented ball player. He's he very good going forward, very sensible defender as well. Um, and, and, and obviously David Luiz is known in some elements of the British media as being a slightly suicidal defender, but he's an excellent footballer. He really is. Highly yeah. underrated footballer. Um, and I'm fascinated to see what Conte does at Chelsea and also how that rubs off in the rest of the league because there's so much potential, like Bardi says, for Spurs to potentially play a back three. I think Liverpool could comfortably play a back three. There are other teams as well. City, we've seen play a back three on occasion. But the key of, the key of every tactic, if you've got a tactic, you've got to invest in it. You can't flip-flop from one tactic to the other. Bielsa has his style. That's how he does it. Klopp has his style. Conte has his formation. What concerns me at the moment about Pochettino is he's, is he's gone from a manager who arrived with a very distinct set, a very distinct tactic and a way to play football to um, a team now at the moment that we don't know who's going to start next week. Once we got knocked out of the Europa League last season, we kind of knew what formation we were going to play, who's going to play. I can't tell you who's going to start against Chelsea. I don't know if you guys know, but at the moment we seem to be lost and that formation against Monaco was completely against what he would normally play it was narrow there was nothing really happening you needed a player centrally to control the ball but we didn't have it I want, I want to talk about this a lot more actually but I just want to go back briefly to um, Bielsa and, and Pochettino's beginnings at Spurs um, Bielsa in, in some respects was seen as a fairly kind of uh, gung-ho coach with, yeah. with his formations. I mean, there's, there's that really famous YouTube clip where Chile um, break forward and end up, they have a beautiful flowing attacking move. I, com I completely forget who it's against. And they end up with about seven players within 20 yards of goal and any one of them could have scored the, the goal yeah. that eventually goes in. Um, I don't think we've seen that with Pochettino so far at Southampton or Spurs. There, there have been games where we've been really good going forward, don't get me wrong, but he's always had 
at least one holding midfielder, normally two holding midfielders, um, who were there to kind of close things off should things go the other way. There were times when he was playing Mason in midfield that I felt that there were signs of him going full Bielsa gung-ho. I don't think that's happened over a prolonged period of time. And I think, I'm just, I'm wondering, is that him learning from a, from Bielsa and kind of saying, okay, here are the weaknesses of that of that setup, Or has he just not mastered the attacking free-flowing football yet? Yeah, I think um, Bielsa is sort of this uh, revolutionary character but an an idealist. I think he's sort of um, carried away with sort of perfectionism and and it leads to sort of very dramatic falling out with clubs where he loses the dressing room or he falls out of the board and moves on to his next thing. And I think that uh, Pochettino is a slightly more pragmatic, more refined version of Bielsa. And that, that, yeah, that's exactly what we've seen so far. Yeah, I think one of Bielsa's mottos is the, the possible's already been done. What I'm looking for is the impossible, which is always going to set you up. And after his, um, I think it was after his. That's a fr- lovely quote. It's yeah. a good quote. That's a it? lovely quote. I think Say it, was, it again. Um, the impossible has already been done. What I'm looking for is the impossible. But after he won the the title with Newell's, he um, his team went, they capitulated the next season, and they only won nine games. And and he does kind of suck everything, everything out of you. And there's a fear in me that after last season, maybe, you know, what we're seeing now isn't a Pochettino team. And there's a fear that this could be, this could be repeating itself. I don't want to go down that road just yet. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm a slightly more optimistic fan. I, I dread, I mean, I don't want to believe that's happening. I don't, actually don't think it is happening. That's just the pessimism. Um, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk about was Pochettino as a person. Because I think so much of what he's brought to the club for me in particular, um, but I know many other fans feel this way as well, is he's created this real sense of togetherness between the the club, so people that work at the club, Daniel Levy, whoever, the coaching team, the players and the fans. I feel like it's, for the first time in a long time, he really made me feel as though everything was going the right way and pulling in the same direction. And a real team spirit, and especially once he got rid of those difficult characters who he, mm. he kind of... He picked out from the very start and, it, you know, it took one or two games of uh, things going horribly wrong for him to just basically, you know, get rid of them. Yeah, They were sent to, to train with the development squad or they were, you know, not playing any football, basically. And instead, he brought in his, his own choice, the younger players, as we mentioned before. But, do you, I mean, what has he meant to you as a, as a figurehead? For me, he just gave me something to believe in again with the team. I needed, I, you know, I invest large chunks of my life into Tottenham Hotspur, my time, my money, my, some of my spirit. And um, for me, it just gave me something to support again. And even, even on days when I'm down and Tottenham have really pissed me off, there's still, you know, there's still nothing compared to the, the amount of love I have for them. And Pochettino's responsible for that. Of course, it will continue when, one day when he leaves. But... Um, he just gave he he gave our club back to all of us, and there's no one that you can't really deny that. Anything you want to add, Nathan? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I um, it's it's so much easier to buy into a sense of togetherness, to buy into the cult of the club when the football is good, when the players are coached well, when it means that they can perform at their best, and 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 yeah, it really creates that that atmosphere of positivity between everyone. And I think the the other thing that he brought, which has genuinely changed my 
the way I think about football. That's the ability to improve players. Because, my God, if I haven't seen Moussa Dembele... Hmm. I mean, he was a player I wanted sold to Sunderland or, yep. or whoever, the highest bidder, basically. And now he's an absolute linchpin in our side. He's so vital to the way we play. Danny Rose, Kyle Walker, two players who were good functional fullbacks. I mean, Rose wasn't always good, actually. Sometimes he, he was a player that many were, were saying was being overtaken by Ben Davies. You look at them now and you think, how many better players in Europe in their position are there? Not many. And Pochettino's had to do it this way because half the players he's got are, are players that got um, AVB the sack and players that were not performing under Sherwood. He hasn't had the, the chance to spend £100 million on his own players. He's had to use the Magnificent Seven, keep the ones that he can get something out of, and then bring the rest of his team through. I mean, we needed a striker. When um, AVB was in charge, we went out and bought Soldado. Pochettino needs a striker. They go out and buy Janssen. You see, there's where the difference is. That's, the, that's what Pochettino hasn't had to work with. And for that, he deserves a lot of credit because he's moulded players from nothing into good players and he's brought you through because he's had to. And this is a point I definitely want to come back to later as well because I think there's a lot he can do with some of our current players who aren't necessarily firing. But let's quickly talk about Nathan and uh, what he's doing at the moment. Nathan, you've you kind of made a little niche for yourself in the Spurs online community as this kind of uh, tactical narrator, I, I would say. You're, you make videos which are normally about the way we play um, with voiceovers and you kind of draw stuff over tactical images I mean where did it all come from what was your when did you get interested in this kind of thing uh so I started um leaving longer and longer sort of comments on uh, on forums Spurs forums about upcoming games because uh I think you've talked about uh on before uh, before on this podcast about being fans of Tottenham not football I'm very much a football fan and I follow every team in the league to a degree um you know except West Brom uh, so I I wanted to sort of bring my casual knowledge of the other teams into our discussion of upcoming games and these comments got longer and more in depth and I thought you know what why don't I take this outside of the forum I started making the videos simply because um, it was easier to do than bother to write out I just sort of made a couple of notes and talked for a while and uh, it went from there and now my videos are more taking game footage and, uh, and analysing it in the style of sort of match of the day or Gary Neville yeah. I really enjoyed your um, kind of chopped up previews of games. I thought they were... And the, and the fact that the voiceover wasn't too polished is what I think attracted <laughs> me to them the most. It was like, I don't care how this is presented. What I'm saying is what matters. And I, I really like that style. Um, Punk rock previews. Absolutely. <laughs> but also your, your blogs are great as well. I mean, are you... When did you get into writing? Yeah, well, like I said, it was the uh, the, the sort of comments on the forum... And then sort of being quite confident in what I was doing and saying I'm gonna I'm gonna take this elsewhere and and sort of make a thing of it. But have a Twitter account and uh, and start yeah getting some attention for it basically. It's, it's basically exactly the same way that I got into writing about football, which is forum posts and people saying oh, I really enjoy what you're saying. Maybe you should start a blog. Um, I think it's so common in in many football bloggers these days that they've started off on Reddit or on on forums, football forums, whatever, and it's just become a bigger thing that. And once you start doing it, actually, you kind of have this compulsion to do it every week. Or, yep. I mean, I used to do the uh, analysis of goals conceded after <laughs> every game. Genuinely, genuinely obsessed by that. Like, I, I didn't enjoy doing it. I, I felt like a compulsion to do it. Um, people, some some people liked it, some people hated it. But I, I couldn't let a, 
a goal go by without, <laughs> without writing about it. Was it was a little bit strange. I this did is, hate myself. This is it. all the things you've done shit, and I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to keep looking misery. at it. Yeah. It made me feel like um, I seemed like a really pessimistic fan as well, and that's absolutely not the way I am. I'm very optimistic. But the thing about the thing about blogging and stuff, it takes stamina. You got someone like Spooky who's been blogging since before the internet existed. But Spooky's not a blogger; he's a novelist. Yes, <laughs> but it, it, it takes stamina, and it, you know. People want to write about something, just go out and write and keep writing. And it's, it's, a, it's a passion, it's talking, writing about football. And um, I'm like Nathan, I like all football. I end up finding myself watching more Arsenal games than anybody else. I don't know, I'm obsessed <laughs> more with More big fascination with more, Exactly, like last night yeah. I couldn't stop watching them. But um, I watch all football. I don't, uh, I just enjoy it. I enjoy the game, enjoy the sport. So what's, Nathan, just to remind us, what your at TT... Tactics on Twitter? Yeah, at TT Tactics. I couldn't get Talking Tottenham Tactics as an app because it was too long, which is annoying. So I've got this sort of half acronym thing, which isn't great, but, you know, it's done now. <laughs> and the blog? Is talkingtottenhamtactics.wordpress.com. I don't know. You'll find it. And YouTube, I guess, is Talking Tottenham Tactics. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really using the YouTube. Uh, I've sort of moved on to Vimeo. But, yeah, it's, you'll find it all through my Twitter, so that's the way to do it. Well worth a look. I highly recommend Nathan's stuff. It's excellent. And also, I, I hadn't realised that um, you were one of my favourite Reddit users. I think we've had this conversation before, but we you have. were one of my favourite Reddit users. And then uh, it became apparent that you were also this... TT Tactics guy, and I was very happy. <laughs> Reddit is, uh, for those who don't use Reddit, I mean, it's, it's basically a forum on anything, but the spur, the Koi's Reddit is great. Shout out to the Koi's Reddit, because I think they're a, a really good community with a lot of in-depth knowledge um, and also really have been very supportive of the fighting cock, which is always nice. And even if they disagree with you, they're very <laughs> polite with their disagreements. You, know. you get a few twats, but you get a few twats everywhere in yes, life. But, um, on the whole, great bunch of people. Okay, let's talk a little bit about our recent tactical switches. Um, and I'm interested in this to a lot, really, because last year we... I mean, personally, I was highly frustrated with Pochettino for sticking rigidly to one formation, particularly in games where we weren't doing so well and I felt like we, we could change things or should have started differently. This year, it's kind of gone the opposite way, where I'm I'm <laughs> I'm now hoping that he sticks to a more rigid formation and goes back to what we know because he's really changed it up significantly. So we we began the season with Kane and Janssen up front, which was a bit of a surprise to most people, I think. Well, um, it, well, Janssen came on at half-time, didn't he, against Everton? So we started with yeah. one and then we reverted to two because it, it wasn't working. But um, personally, I, I think Pochettino's flipping from one tactic to the other because one, because of injuries, and two, because of lack of form in certain players like Eriksen, who carries our biggest attacking threat normally. He's been woefully off form. Ali's been injured. Dembele has been in and out, suspended, not quite right. So he's having to try and find a tactic which suits the players he's got available to him and the players who are on form. I mean, he didn't drop Ericsson, I don't think, against Monaco for um, form reasons. Well, no, he dropped him because of form reasons, not because of tactical. He couldn't really play him. So um, I, I think it's down to the players, not performance, to be honest. I think it all really comes down to Dembele. I don't think he's been fit at all this season. And our entire style of play is so dependent on someone who can take the ball off the defenders and bring it up through the middle of the pitch and, and contain it there as well. 
And because he's been off form and, and half fit or suspended, we've gone through these various shapes. So the 4-1-4-1, where the fullbacks come inside and act like midfielders, the diamonds, where you've got two central midfielders, are all various ways of trying to compensate for a lack of match fit Dembele. And um, they all have their own weaknesses as a result of trying to compensate. That 4-1-4-1 frustrates the hell out of me because I think it, it basically... It's, it's it plays against everything we're good at. It means that Walker and Rose can't bomb down the flanks like they naturally want to do and like they're so good at. Um, it also, I, th- I feel like it stifles our creativity in, it, creativity in the centre of the pitch as well. But that was the formation that took Man City apart. Yeah, that was a very different um, context because in that game, City had more of the ball and we sat back a little bit and could run into space behind them. And so in that play, in a, in a defensive shape, it really works for us. But when we're playing against almost any other team in the league mm-hmm. and we've got to bring the game to them, then having players like Lamella forced out onto the flank just doesn't work at all. And that formation does ask the wide players to be wider. Yeah. Which doesn't necessarily suit our wide players, particularly given that they've adapted to Pochettino's formation where they're all narrow. Previously, last year, Lamella, Eriksen, Ali, whoever played wide, were very narrow. They were playing within the width of the penalty area, basically, which suits Lamella down to the ground because he's he's so good at those through balls and pressing the uh, centre-backs. Suits Eriksen because that's where he wants to play anyway. And... Ali makes those out-to-win runs so well that it suited him. Um, and something we didn't actually touch on when we were talking about Southampton, but I wanted to point out, is that Ali essentially, at times last year, played the Jay Rodriguez role, where he starts wide and makes that diagonal run towards goal. That's something I really want to see more of, more of the Spurs. I think particularly with Alderweireld's diagonal passing, but even with Dyer's, there's so much potential there for Ali to be getting on the end of long balls which take the centre-backs out of play. And going direct is something Spurs are actually quite good at. And perhaps that's something we should look to do more. Not with two up front, Janssen and Kane, because I don't think that works, but with a midfield player making that run beyond the striker. But it doesn't work if um, Alderweireld and Vertonghen aren't playing, because I don't think Dyer's passing is as good as, as, we, as, as you think it is. I thought during, during the Euros, I thought Dyer's passing was acceptable. I don't think as a I don't think he could ever play a role which kind of makes him have to dictate play. And I thought Wimmer's passing, from what I've seen so far this season, hasn't been great either. I thought he was a bit more cultured, but um, his passing is a bit more hit and hope at the moment. I think Wim. The thing about Wimmer is he's very confident on the ball. He's he's good with the ball at his feet. Surprisingly good with the ball at his feet for a player that we were told is basically a stopper. And I mean, maybe maybe I'm, I'm I'm overcompensating. I think he looks decent with the ball at his feet, like he can actually um, read the game and make sensible decisions with, with <clears throat> when he's trying to dribble past the player. But like you say, his passing is the the thing that lets him down slightly in the potch side. Vertonghen obviously is excellent, one probably the best defender in the league at carrying the ball forward. Mm. Um, and Alderweireld is probably one of the best passing centre backs um, in Europe. I'd say David Luiz and Alderweireld between them are. Alderweireld's probably, I would go as far as saying, he's one of the best signings we've, we've ever made at our club. Yeah. Now, I can't argue with that. I mean, he's phenomenal. Phenomenal. And the amount we've missed him, not just in terms of our defence, but the way he starts our attacking play. He's, he's our Bonucci. He he starts everything. He's um, They call Bonucci Bonnie Bauer. And he's, he's our version of that. He's the one that starts attacks going. 
Aldebauer. Aldebauer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's gonna kick. I don't think that's gonna it's catch. Not catch <laughs> no. But um, he—that's how how important he is to us, and we've lost. We've we've missed him big time. And I, just talking quickly about him, I thought his injury was only meant to be like um. It's a weird, that isn't it? It's got what's going on there? Proper weird. Spurs are lying to us, basically, is what's happening there. Um, let's hope he's back soon, but apparently not for the Chelsea game. I mean, what we'll try and do on these podcasts, because they're going to be roughly every four to six weeks, well, assuming you like them, um, <laughs> is we'll try and talk about some of the the key tactical facets of some of the games in, in the period that's gone by. So for this for this podcast, we'll talk a little bit about West Ham and a bit about Monaco, and we'll perhaps look forward to Chelsea briefly as well. I mean, the West Ham game... It was a really bizarre change of shape. We played this narrow 4-4-2 diamond, which saw Harry Binks come in, which is great. He was probably our man of the match, played really well. He was kind of narrowly on the right of the midfield. Wanyama was in front of the defence. Then Belly sort of off to the left. Uh, and then Eriksen ahead. I, I couldn't work out why we made that change. Um, West Ham play a three... Well, they play what's described as a 3-4-3. Actually, for a lot of the game, it ends up as a back five when they're defending with uh, Creswell and Antonio which very, is, very which deep. Which is fair enough. It's which one is of the absolutely benefits. fair enough. It's you one know, of the benefits of playing three at the back. Away at uh, one yeah. of the best teams in the country, you cannot blame them. And to be honest, they deserved to get at least a point, if not three, and everyone would have been raving about Bilic's tactics in that game. Um, what did you make of our shape change? What, what, why do you think we made those changes? I think I just don't think we have the players at the moment to be able to play how Pochettino wants us to play. You know, the strange thing is I'm missing Chadley at the moment and I'm, I'm missing Mason. I never thought I'd be in a situation <laughs> where I'm like, holy shit, I'd put Mason on right now. Or I'd put Chadley on. Someone to spread, stretch the game, do something Run different. beyond. Run, Run beyond and, you know... Do that, as you said, do their kind of out to in, stay wide and then cut in and have a shot or, or have a pass. And we're missing that. And we can't play this narrow formation without, um, you know, if Flav was here to start punching me, without like a trequartista, without an <laughs> enganche, something, a pivot, a player to play the ball into and centre it, which is um, should be Ericsson, but he can't do it. He's unable to do it. And um, he, we're trying to do that, trying to play that way, but it's just it's not working. Ericsson had that one run, one run where he, he went beyond the defence and ended up scoring and it was disallowed. Yeah. And, I, and I thought, I, I'm just thrilled to see him make that run. And I thought this is the start of Ericsson kind of kickstarting himself. I can't remember the last time I saw him make that run. He got between Kiyate and Antonio. Yep. And it was a, a really tidy finish as well. He didn't do that again all game. No. And on match of the day two, Kevin Kilban did some really um, solid analysis about Ericsson about how he wasn't moving into the right areas to receive the ball. Essentially, he was in positions regularly where he couldn't receive the ball, which most football fans would say that he was hiding. He, he was deliberately not making himself available to receive it. The thing is, if you're not going to make yourself available, what you have to do is make a run to draw defenders away from another player who is. And what Kilban pointed out was that Kane was in really good positions, and if Eriksen had made a diagonal run between the centre-back and full-back or wing-back, he then frees up Kane to receive the ball in a, in a really dangerous area on the edge of the box. And the other thing he mentioned was that he wasn't taking the ball on the half turn. Instead, yeah. he was taking it with his back to goal and playing a safe pass. And this is Ericsson of the last few games. He's, he's very, he looks very um, comfortable on the ball because he is. He's a naturally gifted player. 
but he's playing too safe at the moment, and it's just a confidence issue. He's um he's becoming an enabler. If um if every if someone else is playing well, Ericsson plays well. He's really good at supporting people. So against Arsenal, he had his probably had his best game of the season, and that coincided with Dembele's best game of the season. Yeah. And he works really well. If someone else is playing well, Ericsson is the perfect person to have next to him. But if everybody else is playing poor, he's unable to step up, which he's an international established I don't know I don't know if he captains Denmark or not, but you know, he's he's that established that he should be captain. He should be our ringleader, our focus, but he's not. Yeah, he is definitely guilty of sort of shrinking away when things are tough. Um but I, I think he's also hugely dependent on on Dembele. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's really all about he he thrives when we have control over the midfield, and when we have that, he can slowly sort of uh, cook up some pressure and and make things happen. And and when when it's difficult, he will yeah he'll just hide away. I think he uh, he doesn't get the credit for the good things he does, but when he's playing badly, he. He's so obvious with how bad he is that every little thing he does wrong is is a huge show and tell. Which is strange because was it last season where he scored the winners against? Um, no, it was the season before. Where he scored the winner against Hull, and he was scoring late winners. He was doing game changing things, and um, I don't know since maybe since maybe the semi final against Sheffield United. I don't remember him. Uh, he scored the winner against Man City, but other than that, I don't remember him affecting games decisively. And I'm struggling. You know, I've on Reddit they I've been criticised a few times from uh, digging out Ericsson, but I don't can't remember him being decisive and altering games for us. The one thing he does, which I will always give him credit for, is run his socks off. And he comes out nearly every week on on top of the charts of the, mo- the players who covered the most ground, done the most sprints. He's actually improved immensely in terms of his physicality under Pochettino and although he does bottle challenges there's absolutely no denying that and, uh, and I won't try and defend I it I know but I, I, I know what you mean Wendy but I don't want Mo Farah in centre midfield <laughs> you know he runs a lot he gets involved but in those key areas you mentioned about like um, high percentage areas where you're going to lose possession of the ball he needs to be doing better he needs to be doing better there. he needs to be doing stuff like um, Bernardo Silva who was just exceptional, exceptional. That's the level that Ericsson should be aiming to be at. And I'm not saying he needs to be like De Bruyne levels, but at least the Bernardo Silva levels. He, at the moment, he's looking kind of tired. He looks tired and like he's, um, I don't know, it looks like he's he's peaked and, and this is his downward spiral. I'm just hoping, because this, this has been going on, on and off for best part of a year let's be honest I mean we've not seen peak Ericsson for a long time where no. he's, he's put together back-to-back performances where he's been the star man he had against West against uh, Man City I thought he was good St- straight after that game I was thinking Ericsson has been excellent when I re-watched it on Sky he was nowhere near as good as I thought he was at the time but he still had a very good game mm-hmm. um, and I think City was his last match where I was happy with his performance I can't think of any since then where he's he's excelled and I think what Nathan's saying is right. Dembele is so crucial to Ericsson because it Dembele affects where he gets the ball and when he gets the yep. ball. If Dembele's working, he receives the ball, skips away from challenges and pushes it forward. At the moment, he's taking the ball into areas that he can't then get out of. He's losing it. He's ending up sort of making late lunging stretches for it to toe poke it to safety. Yeah. It's, it's not very pretty from Dembele at the moment and Ericsson relies very heavily on when he gets the ball. Just to very briefly touch on um, 
our defending of set pieces, which I think has been a real issue at the moment because I thought it was incredibly prevalent against West Ham. I mean, they're a team that do attack the ball very well and Antonio in particular is incredible in the air. The way, Not just attacking the ball in the air, actually, his movement to do so. Um, very impressive, Antonio. Um, but their first goal was so scruffy. We had Kiate peeling away from Vertonghen way too easily from the initial phase and he probably should have scored himself. And then you've got Rose dropping to the goal line, which... To be honest, it's probably the right thing to do, but was a risk because he then plays two players on side. And neither Wanyama or Dembele tracked Antonio's run. And apparently, from what um, Dan Kilpatrick was saying, Pochettino was bellowing at Dembele just before the um, set piece was taken. And there was something going on there. Um, Dembele kind of backs his way out of a six-yard box. And I think this is... A pr- I remember from when I did those goals conceded analyses that Dembele's uh, six-yard box defending was an issue then, which is probably, what, two years ago. He's not a natural, um, he's not a natural defender. It's not some, he doesn't have those instincts like a, you know, Michael Dawson or a Toby Alderweireld where he wants to throw his body on the line and do that. That's not his game. That's understandable. But um, it was interesting then that he had a different role for the next two corners where he was then on the penalty spot breaking towards the edge of the box, presumably to kind of lead us in a counter if the ball broke loose or to put his massive hulking body on the line <laughs> from blocks from the edge of the box. Um, but he was certainly out of a six-yard box. Is is d- defending set pieces something that's played in your mind with Spurs? Because for me, under Pochettino, I've genuinely felt quite secure. Uh, personally, I don't... I, even against West Ham, I, 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 the way we defend set pieces hasn't worried me. Set pieces is one of those things that it's such a high... The, the, the risk of conceding the goal... Is um, it's not it's not very significant. So I'm I'm not too I'm not too fussed about it. I don't know how Nathan feels. Yeah, no, it's 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 um it's interesting. I can I can sort of explain uh, other various reasons why our form might have dipped, but set pieces seems pretty disconnected from the rest. We're definitely missing out of Vera. I think he's fantastic attacking and defending set pieces, and and there's also damage done when you're constantly changing the team around. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a, a strange dip off that we're suddenly uh, so poor defending corners. And the other point that I just wanted to make from the West Ham game was um, talking about Winks's goal, where he made a really lovely late run into the box off Lanzini's shoulder. And yes, it should have been defended better by Lanzini, who's a player I like. But um, that that <laughs> movement from Winks, I, I would like to talk about your Lanzini <laughs> love. I, I I don't see it. I don't know how they. I'm, I'm with Windy. I'm afraid I'm really? a big big Lanzini fan. I, I think he's incredibly um, tight technically. Everything comes towards him in sticks. He's got a really good football brain. Moves the ball quickly. He reminds me of Luka Modric in the way he plays football, just oh, without the no. strength of Modric. Where would you play him, I suppose? He, he would be competing for Eriksson's place and oh, yeah. be doing a lot yeah. of good for I, both of them that way. I mean, he's, he's uh, in my opinion, he's an absolutely ideal Pochettino signing. Yep. And he's Argentinian as well, so... Yeah. <laughs> OK, fair enough. You answered that one. I <laughs> how, how much... I, I would rather have spent £30 million on Lanzini than I would on Sissoko, but we'll come on to that shortly. Okay. Um, when when Wink scored, he, he was already in a position before Janssen had the shot where he was basically available to score a tap-in um, when Janssen turned. And I like that about Winks. I like the fact that he committed himself and got into the box. And we don't do enough of that from midfield at the moment, which I think is a real um, issue. Winks is fantastic. The more and more I see of him, the more I like him. What's your first impressions of Winks? Because I'm guessing that the two of you probably haven't seen a great deal of him. What do you you make of him so far? I saw him at West Ham, but I was 
under the influence. So I didn't really, <laughs> I, you know, when when we scored our goals, I had to ask T who who scored our goals. <laughs> I knew the ball went in, and I was celebrating that it was a goal, but I didn't know who scored it, and I couldn't even hear the the PA announcing who it was. But um, from what I've seen about him going watch, watching the highlights, and then even against Monaco, where I thought in that first half where everyone else was playing poor, I thought he was great. I love his confidence. I love his ability to just knock it off, knock the pass, or even just wander past players as well. He's got um, he's got a big future, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm really big on Harry Winks. Ever since the uh, Gillingham game, I thought he was just outstanding in that game. And uh, Pochettino's very cautious with Winks. He's he's bringing him to the team really slowly, and bringing him in, into midfield alongside Dembele rather than instead of him. And I think that in the next couple of weeks, it's really time for him to be given that really difficult role, which is Dembele's role in the two of the four two three one, and and kickstart our season basically, which is a strange place to be relying on a twenty one year old, twenty year old, twenty year old, yeah. 21 in February, day before my birthday. Um, I watched a bit of the under, England under-21s against France, and he was good in that, and the commentators were raving about him. But that was actually a really interesting match to watch because I don't know if you guys saw it, but A.D. Boothroyd had a microphone right next to him, yeah. and you could hear everything. And it was brilliant to hear how a manager communicates with his players and the amount they... It's like they're playing FIFA, but the <laughs> controller's in their head. They're just telling the players where to go. It was, um, it was eye-opening. So, so that was interesting. You mentioned um, the idea of Winks play, maybe kind of making that place his own in midfield because we've got to think about the Chelsea game and their their three four three. And without wanting to to instantly date this podcast, it's going to be interesting to for listeners to kind of hear what we've got to say about Chelsea um, and then possibly listen back after the game. Um, I think the way Chelsea are playing at the moment is as much about momentum as it is about their formation. But also, I, I do feel like Conte's really getting the best out of Hazard, who's such a vital player for them. And this this formation gives him so much freedom. Yeah, the, the key the key to Conte is taking a world-class player and getting him to play again. That's what it... You've got Diego Costa, who's not world-class, but he's you know he's up there amongst the best strikers in the world. You've got him, a Hazard, and you've got Pedro, who's finally realised that he's a footballer again. And those three players are, are good. And that's that's the key to Conte. It's it's so fascinating because Pedro's become this almost functional attacking midfield player where he he he's not overly creative. He's just good at arriving in the box or or linking play. Um, I remember seeing him play as a right wing back for Spain at some point. Um, I cannot imagine him playing the Moses role now for Chelsea. He he just wouldn't work with Pedro. Um, I'm just I'm so fascinated by that transition of Pedro as a kind of key linchpin attacking player to someone who's just functional. You just mentioned Moses as well. That just it's just got all the hallmarks of Giaccherini. I hate Giaccherini. <laughs> I think he's the most limited footballer that's ever existed. But for some reason under Conte, he just he just works. And this is this is a guy who's like a second division footballer in Italy until Conte got him and then just turned him into a player who ended up scoring against Belgium at the Euros. And you can see Moses is a much more talented individual. And um, under Conte, he just believes in him and he's thriving. And um, Conte hasn't done anything incredible. He's just got players to play football again in a system that works for them. The other thing about Conte's three-four-three is they've got um, Ingolo Kante in midfield alongside Matic. Now, that if that doesn't give you some protection for your defence, then I don't know what midfield does. I mean, that is an incredibly solid 
hard-working, functional midfield with a lot of tactical discipline. Players who know when to go forward and know that, for the most part, they won't go forward. Um, and that, that allows Costa, Azard, and Pedro to an extent to thrive, but also Alonso and Moses. And I've noticed Alonso, who, when he was at Bolton, was this really kind of lumbering left-back. At Chelsea, he's become a flying kind of almost wing forward in a way that he's arriving in the box he's taking Alonso. shots yeah I really like Marcus Alonso was decent at Fiorentina he was well. yeah he had good games against us in the Europa League but you got to remember that Kante and um, Matic they're not cloggers that's 70, nearly £70 million worth of midfield there so it's not like um, you know they're not unearthed diamonds if you get those two playing Kante won the league with Leicester you know he, you can see the difference between Leicester this season and last season. The difference that guy makes is amazing. He's not just hard working. His understanding of the of football is brilliant. His positional play, and um, he scores goals as well. He scored. A, I think it was, was it Manu where he scored a beautiful goal. Yeah, yeah. He's a proper player. So, bearing in mind what we've just said, and bearing in mind the injuries and suspension situation, obviously Rose suspended, Ben Davies injured. What do you do to stop Chelsea's three four three? So um, the the three four three at Chelsea at the moment is is very uh, unique. It's 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 very different. We, we call it a back three, but a lot of the time it's a back one with just Louise staying back there, and the two wide centre backs really push up and join the deep midfield of Kante and Matic, and then because they've got that. Um, overload in deep midfield they can play combinations with Hazard and Pedro who are up up on uh, the opponent's defence like forwards and they drop in and suddenly you've got this connection between the centre back and the winger and no one marking them and that's where their, their brilliant play is coming from is, is quick vertical passes between those two positions that are really getting them in behind and I think that's why we need to go back to a four-two-three-one for this game because those those four lines, those four layers, means that we're not leaving the space. Everton tried to match them for shape, and I think that was completely the well. The scoreline suggested that was really the wrong way to go. I think you've really got to go with uh, the four-two-three-one and. Uh, ignore the wing backs, surrender the wide area to the wing backs, and only go over there when the ball goes over there. So you you think play almost a counter-attacking game, like the like the game against Arsenal, I believe was it at the Emirates where we we really sat back and, and hit them on the counter. Um, the the problem is with that we don't really have a natural left back. I mean Vitongan will probably end up playing there, which means Vimmer and Dyer in, in the centre of defence, which does scare me somewhat. Uh, I I think that's the way I would play as well. Yeah, I don't. Other than park the bus over Hazard, I don't. I don't <laughs> see. Azard's in incredible form. We, we we have to pay special attention to him, and I think that's another reason why the four two three one is a must. Because having those two players in the pivot rather than just Wanyama sitting in front of a defence means that you've got that cover in the wide areas. You've got someone who will drop into the fullback area and cover, and Azard will be cutting inside to that area where that player is positioned anyway. So if you have Wanyama predominantly over that side. That gives you an awful lot more protection against Hazard than you would if Wanyama was covering the whole of the uh, defensive zone. Um, so I, I I really want to see Wanyama and Debelli playing as a double pivot, um, probably with Eriksen ahead of them, despite his poor recent performances. Yeah. And I would go with Ali on the left to try and make runs out to win. And I'd be really tempted to go with Winks on the right. I mean, he's not typically suited to playing there, but the way he arrived in the box late against West Ham... His work ethic, the fact that he's good at keeping the ball under pressure, 
and also Son's recent performances haven't been too special, so I, I'd be so tempted to go with Winks there. I don't think that will happen, though. He'll so you think Son. Son will play right play and Son. Winks will be on the bench? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I know we've been criticising Ericsson, but I would start Ericsson as well, just in, uh, in the faint hope that he, um, he sparks into life. He's sparked into life against the bigger teams this year. Maybe, um, maybe this is his time. Cool. Okay, so the last talking point of today's podcast is Moose Sissoko. Because I think there's a lot to be... For me, Sissoko's signing um, was a desperate one. It seemed very un-Pochettino. He's beyond the age that he normally signs players. Um, it seemed very impulsive that he kind of made a decision out of a Liverpool game that we needed players who could break forward and run vertically. And he suddenly saw Sissoko as the guy to do that. He's playing Sissoko wide, whereas I think Sissoko's best position is probably in the centre. So all in all, it didn't really make sense as a signing. I just I wanted to get your thoughts on, on what you th- why you think we signed him and um, how he fits in. I can see term. why we signed him. But he had a good Euros. He's done okay. He's always played well against us. He was available. It, the thirty million price tag. I think we found out that it's structured into I don't think that's a thing yeah. I think that it originally was written poorly by a Guardian journalist that we were paying 6 million over 5 years but actually I think it is basically 30 million paid okay. in instalments regardless but either way 30 million is on transfer deadline day I think we needed the bodies it would have been better if we'd been a bit smarter early on and maybe gone for someone like Mane or Wijnaldum someone like that someone a bit better but um, Maradona said something which is quite interesting. He said, spirit is contagious. If a team is in good form, even the biggest donkey can pick up on it. And Sissoko's <laughs> come into a team which is not functioning. So we're out of form. We're, we're scraping results. So, you know, it's, I think it's a little bit unfair to ask a player like Sissoko to hit the ground running when um, someone like Lamella, we've given three seasons to. Um, so I think... There's more to come from Sissoko. I wouldn't judge him quite now, and we'll see what we'll see what happens. And at least give him a season. See what happens. I'm about as patient as it gets when it comes to Spurs players, but I was pretty much off on the Sissoko idea uh, from the, on transfer deadline day when it was rumored, and that's because I saw him as this uh, player who had a, an eight out of ten talent, but regularly put in four out of ten performances what he's been at Spurs is sort of a consistently five out of ten player um so I I I still find it really confusing I I tried to rationalize it at the time as him being a backup to Dembele but he's not had any game time in the middle and I don't think that's going to happen he's not really safe enough to play there he's had one good game for us against City out on the right where he was able to run with the ball and be direct and also his defensive contribution coming inside uh, and being strong down there. But I against defensive teams, I just don't see what he brings for us at all. I, I really struggle to imagine him being any good as an attacking player for us. But, I mean, if he's, if he's not going to play on the right of a narrow midfield diamond where Winks played, was he suspended for that last game? No. no, he was available. He was available. For Didn't make the squads despite being available. Where, if he's not going to play in that position when the opportunity arises, where is he going to play? I don't understand. And I completely get the point that we've got to give him a chance. Um, and I think, for what I was alluding to earlier, 
is I think there's lots of rough diamonds in this squad that Pochettino can really work with. Janssen being the obvious one at 22, who's got a very... <laughs> there's, there's a lot of sharp edges to smooth out with that Janssen's <laughs> game. Um, but Sissoko at 27 is another one. that You feel like there's so much potential there for... a. a I mean, athletically, he's he's almost unparalleled in the league, the way he moves the ball when he runs with it. Often he'll get through a player just by kind of kicking it really hard and it bouncing back at him. But actually, <laughs> yeah. that's there's talent in that in itself and, and the fact that he's willing to take players on. Um, I mean, I, he, he's never been a wide player in a 4-2-3-1. Never. He, he, he's not it doesn't that, work for him, does it? doesn't it? work. You've got to play him more... Almost like... Um, how PSG play with Matuidi. He's that kind of guy that plays narrow, like um, how Juve used to use Pogba. They're kind of in that middle area who gets up and down. In a three-man midfield. In a three-man midfield. That's, that's where he should exist. So this is what I'm saying. So if he's not going to play when we play a three-man midfield, then then it shows that, I mean, maybe it's a form thing. Maybe it's a confidence thing. And maybe that is, if Pochettino does move towards that formation, maybe Sissoko is the man that comes in. Um, I guess the other thing to mention is that at, Southampton, Pochettino had this very lopsided 4-2-3-1 where he had Rodriguez wide on the left, but then on the right he had a very much tucked-in player, be that Davies or Ward or Ward Prowse um, or whoever it was at the time. Sissoko potentially could play that role. I don't think he's got the creative instincts to do that. I don't think his passing in the final third is good enough. I think his his best attributes are the fact that he's rangy and can and arrive late and go past players, I, I don't see him so far, certainly, as someone who's going to pick a pass. His crossing's been abysmal. That's the most yeah, disappointing thing. Really poor. Even if he gets into that position, he's struggling to find a man, which is really disappointing. Um, I don't know. I, I am concerned about Sissoko. The one thing he does do is that he will sort of uh, consistently try a trick, which appears to fail, and then it bounces off the opponent's shin and then onto his shin, and then he's away with it. And the first couple of times you see that happen, you go, oh, he's sort of been a bit lucky yeah. there, but okay. But when it's the fifth time that's happened in a game, you sort of think, okay, well, maybe that's maybe that's actually a thing he has, and fair enough. Pelé used to do that, didn't he? Pelé, it was so easy for him that he would get the ball and just like kick it off the defender yeah. and get it back. So, so maybe Sissoko is Pelé. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I mean, that seems like a really good point to end the discussion. When, when, they, <laughs> when they remake um, Escape to Victory, it's going to be uh, Sissoko in a German prison, prisoner of war camp who has to play against the Germans. <laughs> I, oh, God. Oh. And he'll come up with an overhead at last minute. I, 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 can just, I can imagine that there are um, friends from the fighting cock just screaming, apologise, Bardi, at <laughs> their speakers right now. Never. Um, something I'd like to... Um, make a regular feature of this uh, podcast is further reading so um where we talk about things we've read or seen this week that you want to recommend and i, I didn't actually warn you to so i don't know if you, either of you brought anything but for me this week i read something which actually nathan had retweeted which was an article by ricardo tavares um rj tavares on twitter uh and he'd written it at medium.com which i think is just a blogging platform right? yeah That's, um, where he talks about the type of pa- types of passes that Spurs make and which players are involved. Um, really, really interesting, particularly because he'd done it without watching any Spurs. He purely looked at the stats and looked statistically uh, who's getting the ball where, who's making what kinds of passes, which in some respects limits his ability to kind of analyse us properly. In another, it was a really interesting insight from a completely different angle that I hadn't considered before, so I highly recommend that. But also the analysis that I mentioned earlier from Kevin Kilban on Match of the Day 2. Um, Kilban's a good speaker, actually, on football. 
He's someone whose views I genuinely think are quite uh, insightful, uh, where a lot of pundits kind of go back to the tried and tested methods. Uh, so, so Kilban's piece on Match Day Two, if you can, if you want to download that. Um, generally, if I can't find any, uh, if I if I haven't recorded Match Day Two, I generally go on to the Reddit football downloads subreddit, and they ha- they link to highlights of match of the day and full highlights of most games in there so if you wanted to check that out then i'm sure you can find it through reddit anything from you guys and further reading i am um, go read angels with the dirty faces angels with the dirty faces by jonathan wilson that is fucking sexy what's that about it's um so argentinian football so it starts right at the, like when the english were there and they created their cricket clubs and their polo clubs and how the um how football sprung up from there and how it took over the country and how they kind of embodies all of the Argentinian spirit about tango, about ruthlessness, about being hard to beat, and how things through their culture have shaped how their team played. It's an absolutely brilliant book. It goes for obviously through 78, talking about when they won the, the World Cup under Menotti and how Menotti's like this kind of flair, almost a hippie guy who's winning the World Cup for a dictatorship and about the clashes of personality. Obviously, it mentions the Spurs players, talks a little bit about the Falklands War and how um, I think there's even a quote from Ardiles Ovila who say that they felt really at home at Spurs when the Falklands War kicked off, that they felt the Tottenham fans really looked after them. And it's just it's just a beautiful book. And, um, yeah, go and read does, it. Does Poch get, get a mention in that? Yeah, thing? they talk about Bielsa. Poch is mentioned a few times. They go back to a moment in the World Cup when England beat Argentina 1-0, the, the Beckham penalty. Apparently Pochettino had a chance in the last minute to equalise, which kind of really locked out of my mind. Yeah, I can't remember that at all. Apparently Seaman made an amazing save from a corner, but it's a really good book. I'd highly recommend it. Nathan, anything you've read this week that's piqued your interest? That analytical piece was, I just want to reiterate how fantastic it was. The, 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 The fact that he hasn't watched the football but he's looked at the numbers and come away the same conclusions that I have from watching it is is a real support of uh, the power of analytics and how football needs to evolve to catch up with those uh, analytical insights into the game I mean you've described that there far better than I did but it's um yeah well done Ricardo terrific piece and uh, if you if you can't find it then look down Nathan's timeline or my timeline on Twitter and we both we both retweeted it thanks for listening I hope you've enjoyed it um give us some feedback and some ideas for talking points for the next time. We will aim to do these either monthly or six-weekly. I think the way it's fallen this time will probably be after Christmas. Um, uh, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed having Nathan here for his, his insight and Bardi for his kind of historical knowledge of football <laughs> as well, which I think is excellent. Just blagging. If you've got any questions, it would be cool if you use the hashtag TFCExtraInch. <laughs> uh, mostly because I think it will be it will flatter Flav a bit and his excellent naming style. Um, but yeah, TFC Extra Inch at Love a Shirt. Email editor at thefightingcock.co.uk. And uh, yeah, we hope to be back soon. Cheers. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Cock. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 Look, my day job as a firefighter is tough, but my night job as a social media manager, my Persian cat Jinxie, that's intense. It's 8 p.m. I've finally gotten home from another 24-hour shift, and I just want to kick back with a cold one, but old Jinxie knocks my beer right off the counter and gives me that look that says no drinking on the clock. But Heineken Zero Zero keeps us both happy. Zero alcohol, but just as refreshing. So I get my drink, and I can still work on Jinxie's new line of merch. Heineken Zero Zero. 0.0% alcohol. Now you can. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy responsibly. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Network.